0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Montana based writer David Quammen says that COVID 19 is a reminder of viruses' destructive power, but that life as we know it would be impossible without them. In his latest article for the National Geographic, he reviews the evolutionary origins of viruses and shows how they've helped shape the history of life. He's also written extensively about the uh, coronavirus, and uh, today on the program, we're going to talk with David Coleman about viruses in general and COVID nineteen specifically. David Coleman, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you, Tom. It's good to be with you again.
0: Good to, good to have you with us. I've been reading on your website, which is by the way DavidQuaman.com. uh quite a year for you as it has been for all of us. You say you you, yeah. you got through last year with one take of gas. Uh um, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um I I uh <laughs> I I haven't been in an airplane since March 2nd. Um and I I've only been out of the county here one time and that was when I went to another county as an election observer. Um, so, uh, it's been a hard year for everybody, um, freelance writers and authors who explain viruses have had no shortage of work, but, uh, crazy difficult time for folks all over the country and all over the world.
0: Yeah. You've, I imagine you've been very busy, um, double knee replacement as well for you.
1: That's right. Yeah. I got that done this summer. Yeah. And I'm a satisfied customer. Yo, good. I, good.
0: Um, <laughs> and then took up skiing again, of course, cross-country, you say, with your, with your new knees. Back
1: to cross-country, yes. Matter of fact, I hope to get out for a couple of hours this afternoon. Um, my surgeon has told me that, uh, yes, bicycling is great, cross-country skiing, fine. I asked him, what about telemark skiing? And he cringed <laughs> and said, you might want to lay off the telemark skiing, a little bit too much torque in the knee from that.
0: <laughs> um, you were an election observer, you say.
1: I was, for the Democratic Party of Montana. Um, I was stationed in um, ballot dropbox places. Uh, um, everybody was very polite and cordial, and we wore our masks, and uh, it was uh, it was uneventful. But I, I, I felt very good to have the opportunity to participate.
0: Now, you write that you're um, known for writing about viruses, right? And your book, Spillover, talks about uh, how viruses and such come from uh you know animals to humans um so early on in this um uh, i guess your attention must have been pretty riveted
1: oh yes yes when i published spillover back in 2012 i channeled warnings from scientists much smarter than myself um disease experts who were saying yes there is a pandemic coming um, the next big one yes it will be caused by a virus that virus will come out of a wild animal of some sort what kind of a wild animal well it could very well be a bat what kind of a virus well uh, the influenza's are always dangerous but it could very well be a coronavirus. where might that happen well it might happen in or around or on the way to some sort of a market where wild animals are sold live as food so all of that was in the book back in 2012 and when this thing began, I was uh, the only thing that surprised me was how unprepared we were for it. And my attention was really riveted in. And in January of last year, I believe it was January 13th, when I got um, a, uh, uh, um, uh, a news update from this disease sort of bulletin board subscriber service that I belonged to, talking about this cluster of atypical pneumonia in Wuhan, China, and at that point for the first time i saw the words novel coronavirus and that's when i thought oh okay this could be very serious folks
0: so 2012 uh that's very specific that these experts were, were talking about it happened exactly that way what broke down in 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 warning system and
1: in, in well, prevention um that's what i was asking myself as this pandemic spread essentially we had the science. We had the public health expertise, uh, but we did not have the the preparedness because of uh, failures, essentially, of national leadership. In the U.S., for instance, we had had a a directorate devoted to pandemic preparedness um, within the National Security Council. That had begun, that sort of preparedness had begun with George W. Bush and was expanded under Barack Obama. And then when the new guy came in, I can't recall his name anymore, I've forgotten it already, but the guy who was president from 2016 to 2020, uh, he dismantled that. Um, There were programs um, supporting viral research and discovery around the world that the U.S. had been putting vast amounts of money into. That program was, uh, was discontinued. So we had a failure of national leadership, and we had a failure to some degree of uh, individual and community responsibility of people feeling like uh, in America, for instance, rugged individualism was more important than community health. I've been saying from the beginning of this that that this presents complicated, important tensions between individual liberties, civil liberties, and public health, and both of those things at the, the two ends of the spectrum are vastly important. Individual liberty, civil liberties, of course, vastly important. Public health also vastly important, and and we needed to sort out a balance between those two things in terms of suggestions and mandates for social distancing, for closure of bars and restaurants, and other um, forms of, of um, socializing um, business. Uh, for the wearing of masks, uh, we had we had bad leadership at the national level, and we have had very spotty, reluctant, incomplete um, cooperation by individual people and communities.
0: Are there, uh, are there places uh, that you could point to that, that handled this a lot better than we did and, and had had success, and what are the factors? I'm, you know, I'm thinking maybe yeah. N- New Zealand, for example, but uh, others maybe you could mention. Right.
1: right. New Zealand has handled this well. Australia has handled this well. Uh, the city state of Singapore has handled this well. The Republic of Korea, South Korea has handled this well. Japan has handled it well. Um, but um, but they haven't been and, and they've done that because they've had uh, some of those things that I mentioned. They had not only good science and good public health measures, but they had community buy-in and willingness to follow directives. and they had good um, leadership at the top. Uh, so they they took rigorous measures. Asked people or required people to, uh, uh, to socially distance themselves, to wear masks. Uh, they did contact tracing. Um, they required people to self-quarantine if they tested positive. Um, they did a lot of things that, uh, um, particularly us in the West, Tom, we just, you know, w- w- we don't like people to tell us what to do. Sometimes you have to pay attention to what is good for the community as well as what your individual rights are. Um, and uh, and that balance was different in places like Singapore and Japan and even Australia, which has got a Wahoo um, uh, spirit and a, and a culture of individualism just like we do. But it happens to be an island uh, nation that doesn't get as much international travel as the U.S. does. and So they've done very well with it. But even in those places, there have been ups and downs. There have been surges and, um, and declines. Um, this is such a subtle, nefarious, stealthy virus that even the places that have done everything right, um, at least some of them have suffered their surges and suffered their cases, caseloads and their losses, but not at the cataclysmic level that we saw in Italy, in March in New York City, in April, and we're seeing again in some places right now.
0: How does the pandemic end? What what does what does uh, previous experience uh, tell us? Is is the vaccinations the vaccines is that the key? How how does this uh, how does yeah, this end?
1: how does this pandemic end? Tom, if I tell you how this pandemic ends, will you tell me what stocks to buy this <laughs> afternoon?
0: <laughs> you you bet. We'll we'll both do it. Yes.
1: Okay, uh, but we can make. We can make some guess, some informed guesses. Uh, first of all, the vaccines that are being rolled out now—vastly important, vastly helpful. Um, I haven't had one yet, but I—I would go. I'd stand in line today if I could to get the vaccine. Um, that will help. By the time we get, as Dr. Fauci has said, if we get, if we get seventy percent of the U.S. population vaccinated by the end of the summer, then we should expect to be able to start to go back to life. Is normal. So that's part of it. But this this virus is never going to go away. This virus is never going to be gone, I believe, and scientists that I trust believe, never going to be gone from the human population now that it's in us. So we will have to continue to be vigilant. We'll have to continue to vaccinate. I suspect that 40 years from now, children will be vaccinated against COVID-19, just the way children are still vaccinated against measles, Um, measles we've had a vaccine for 50 or 60 years it's um, a more dangerous virus than some people think Um, there has been a relaxation in some places of of vigilance and 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 rigor of measles vaccine and in 2019 measles killed 200,000 people around the the world if I'm remembering the numbers right Um, so that's a model for what COVID-19 might be like it might be with us forever it might kill people in areas where there has been inadequate coverage with vaccines. Uh, it might flare up here and there, but it, uh, it won't be, I hope, it won't be a pandemic anymore after um, 2021, I hope, mm-hmm. if we do what's necessary. Yeah.
0: What do you think? Um, life, life back to, you know, quote-unquote normal, what, fall of this year? I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to predict.
1: It's hard to predict. But Tony Fauci says that, yes, if we do uh, do what we can do in terms of getting vaccines into um, every possible arm, um, get 70 to 85 percent of the people um, vaccinated. uh, I hope he hopes he expects that um, life will be getting back to normal in the fall of this year if we don't do that then the deal is off and and we could suffer a a continuing roller coaster of surges and plateaus and declines and of course now we've got these new variants of the virus the the virus is evolving Uh, and whether it can evolve fast enough to escape our vaccines to get around our vaccines or whether we can we can tweak our vaccines adjust our vaccines as fast as the virus evolves that remains to be seen too and that's a reminder of how how important continuing research continuing um uh, development work continuing science is for controlling this thing
0: the vaccination will have to uh, you know know—we'll have to continue to vaccinate right you'd say that this variant of the coronavirus will be with us probably always uh the flu is uh, you know the common flu or the strains of the flu are are an example where we try to get vaccines right every year right but it's kind of guesswork and and that's one where we ha- don't control it that well
1: that's right and the influenzas they're they're taken for granted to some degree the way measles is taken for granted and yet they can, they can be very dangerous viruses One of the reasons we need a new flu vaccine every year is because the group of viruses that are the influenzas that infect humans are very, very changeable. Uh, not only do they mutate, um, making small mistakes as they copy their genomes—you know, one letter of the genome here and there. Not only do they do that at a at a fairly fast clip, but they also pop apart into sections. The, the genome of the virus itself. There are only, let's see, eight or nine genes in the um, the average genome of, a, of a, an influenza virus, if I'm remembering correctly, and they pop apart and reassemble. Um, and they do that, they can do that in the, in the body of a creature, whether it's a human or a pig, that is infected with two different strains of the influenza virus. Um, different sections can pop apart and come together in different combinations. So they are changing all the time. Um, we hear about H5N1, H1N1, H5N7. The H's and the N's represent two of those segments, um, and there are another well, seven or so segments. So constantly rearranging and uh, producing new, new variants of influenza, for each of which um, we need a new vaccine. Um, this, this virus doesn't change that quickly, so that now that we have some good vaccines, uh, we can be hopeful that those vaccines will will last for a few years, but these new these new variants, these newly evolved um, strains, variations on the the, the basic um, they call it the wild type of the COVID nineteen virus um, they uh, they may they may challenge us to to have to keep changing our vaccines as we go along. Um, one of those variants is coming out of the United Kingdom. Another one's coming out of South Africa. And now we've heard about one that exists in Brazil, each of which causes serious concern to the to the vaccine developers and to um, to Tony Fauci.
0: Uh, so it's kind of an arms race. We'll, we'll just have to maybe have to keep ahead of that with new vaccines.
1: It is, yeah. I heard somebody call it yesterday uh, the, uh, the race between the virus and the vaccines. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's an, it's an yeah. arms race in the sense that we have to get those vaccines into arms.
0: Yeah, yeah yes, that's that's true. That's true. Uh, it brings up a point. Um, there's, as you know, increasing vaccine skepticism
1: uh, in yes. some countries. Yes, that's a problem. That um, that that is a real problem. And um, people, it's it's part of a larger problem, which is that a, a lot of people. In, particularly in the U.S., but in other countries, too, around the world, um, have, have been um, seduced by the fashion of denying science, rejecting science. And vaccine development is one branch of, of science and scientific technology, medical science. Um, if you don't believe in evolution and you don't believe in vaccines, fine... But then you may as well not go to a doctor for anything because medicine is based on uh, on science. Uh, I mean, it's a very sad and dangerous thing. This rejection, the skepticism of expert um, uh, expert advice in any form. One variant of that is um, rejection of scientific advice. People can find the um, they can find stories on the on the internet that will satisfy their you know, their fears and their paranoias and their, um, their political um, uh, disposition. You can find anything on the Internet, um, but most of it is, you know, crackpot noise, or much of it is. It's not peer-reviewed, um, reliable science, which is published in scientific journals, respected scientific journals, such as Nature and Cell and the Journal of Virology, uh, and people find reports and and rumors and claims on the internet, and sometimes those are um, those are presented as though they were scientific papers, but they're not. That's just a matter of formatting. That's just a matter of cosmetics. Anybody can write a crazy manuscript, and then and then set it in type so that it looks like a scientific journal paper, and people are being misled by this. It's very, very sad and problematic for our democracy.
0: We're talking, if just joined us, with David Kwaman. He's uh, based in Montana, and uh, his uh, many books include Spillover, of 2012, um, and Predicted, um, something that uh, like what happened, a spillover. Uh, from, we think, maybe, what David Kwaman a bat in China, in, into humans, this, this new coronavirus? The, the,
1: the best answer at this point is a bat, yes. Um, there is a virus that's 96% similar to this virus by a genome that was identified in a bat from southern China of uh, six or seven years ago. And that was one of the warnings that we got. And that was done by the lab of a woman named Li Shi at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And she has been warning us. Uh, she and others have been warning us for 15 years, 18 years, that um, a coronavirus could be the next big one. Um, but... The virus that she has found that's most similar to this, as I said, 96% similar, that's still not this virus. That's a cousin of this virus that may have evolved separately in, in an isolated bat population for a period of 40 or 50 years. The virus that directly led to this uh, presumably, exists in a different bat population that hasn't been sampled yet. We haven't found that direct ancestor yet. All we found is a cousin, which tells us that with a high degree of confidence, we can expect that this virus came out of a uh, of a horseshoe bat, a small insectivorous bat.
0: Well, we're talking with David Quammen about viruses in general. but We'll get into talking about that. His latest article, its cover article in the National Geographic February issue, uh, talks about viruses. And uh, David Qualman points out that, obviously, COVID-19 is a reminder of viruses' destructive power, but that life as we know it would be impossible without viruses. We'll get into talking about that and uh, other related topics following this break.
1: The first 100 days of a new presidency are a time for America to reset our national agenda. This is Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me, my guests, and listeners from around the country for live national call-in shows Thursday evenings for the first 100 days. How will we all get vaccinated, create jobs, fight racism, and restore our democracy? America, are we ready for the first 100 days?
0: Thursday evenings at 6 here on Utah Public Radio. For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it Undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with David Quammen. Uh, his latest article is cover article in the, the latest issue of National Geographic about uh, viruses. Uh, he says COVID-19 is a reminder of viruses' great destructive power, but life as we know it would be impossible without them. And he reviews in this article, The Evolutionary Origins of Viruses, shows how they've helped shape the history of life. We'll get into talking about that uh, shortly. Uh, you can find David Quammen at his website, Uh So, David Quammen, um, do, do we, I mean, the same scientists that predicted this big one, are, are they saying anything, or, or can you say anything about the next, next big one?
1: Yeah. Yes, the scientists that I trust are, are saying, um, don't get uh, don't get comfortable with the idea that once we have COVID-19 under control, we're through it. Um, there will be another one. There will be more challenges. This is not the last one. There will be another, next big one, or another one that potentially could be as big as this or bigger, worse. Um, there are we live in a world of viruses. Um, viruses are genetic parasites. They cannot replicate um, and live except by infecting cells of cellular creatures. Viruses are not cells themselves, uh, but they infect animals, plants, fungi, bacteria, other cellular creatures and hijack the machinery inside cells to replicate themselves. And all forms of life um, cellular life have them. One estimate I've seen is that there are 1.7 million unique viruses in animals. Um, there, are, Another is that there are 320,000 unique viruses, just as sort of a, a rough guess, within mammals. And some of those viruses... Have the potential to spill over from mammals and become human viruses. So there will be more knocks on the door by by viruses that have spilled over from an animal into a human, and in some cases, those will call cause outbreaks of disease. Maybe a dozen, two dozen, three dozen people get affected, get infected in some remote village. We need to have systems in place for detecting those outbreaks before they become epidemics and before they become pandemics. Um, And that's what the scientists are saying. There will be more spillovers. There will be more outbreaks. Is it inevitable that there'll be more pandemics? Well, it is if we don't do what's necessary to head them off, to contain them before, um, before an outbreak turns into an epidemic and an epidemic turns into a pandemic.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about that, but first, um, I'm sure you've encountered this question. <laughs> uh, the science you've talked to have probably encountered it as well. Can we prevent spillover?
1: Well, it's very difficult to prevent spillover as long as you've got 8 billion humans on the planet who want resources from our richly diverse ecosystems. Um, we go into those richly diverse ecosystems, we capture animals and ship them to market in some cases, or we kill them for food. We cut down the timber, we build timber camps, we build mining camps, we we t- pull uh, strategic minerals out of the ground. And as we do all that, um, we disrupt um, those ecosystems, we come in contact with the wild animals, and we give their viruses an opportunity to spill over into us. Now, a spillover, that, that's the term that applies to the moment when a virus passes from its non-human host into its first human victim. It's just a one-on-one kind of thing, and um, as long as we keep uh, we keep consuming um, the rest of nature, it uh, seems inevitable that there will be more spillovers. Those spillovers can lead to outbreaks, which, as I said, is just you know a cluster of a few dozen cases in a particular area. Um, whether we can prevent Outbreaks is also doubtful, but then comes the point where we can realistically prevent um, the progression to disaster. At the point between outbreak and epidemic, epidemic being you know, a disease spreading across a large population or uh, a larger area across a country, uh, if we have systems of surveillance and reaction in place, um, at the local level, but with international um, connectedness, then we can potentially pr- detect, break, detect outbreaks before they become epidemics, um, contain them, uh, and uh, and avoid uh, avoid the next pandemic. Uh,
0: maybe t- say a little bit more about that. What what is what does what a system like this uh, look like? I imagine resources uh, additional resources from what we have would need to be. Would need to be put into the field uh, to to do early yes, detection. Yes.
1: Essentially, you need essentially you need four things. You need you need good science. You need good public health. You need good um, national and international leadership, and you need individual buy-in. You need community. Um, Cooperation. And in this case, we've had the first two of those. We've had the science and we've had the public health advice, but we've had bad national leadership and we've, as I said, you know, inadequate um, community buy-in. Um, but what do the systems look like? Well, first of all, um, surveillance. And what I mean by surveillance in this case is um, networks of people trained um, in molecular biology, in disease, um, uh, infectious disease ecology, um, in veterinary science, uh, in virology, not just concentrated at the, a few centers around the world, at the CDC and at the China CDC, but, but dispersed um, locally, um, capacity building, so that we're training more people or helping um, national entities train more of their own young people to be virologists, to be molecular biologists, to be paramedical experts so that when you have that spillover that leads to an outbreak in that village in the Congo or in southeastern Cameroon or in Bolivia or in the the southwestern United States, you have people that are there immediately uh, taking samples, doing diagnostics, identifying a new virus, uh, providing the sequence genome of that virus. And then the message goes out around the world through, through, um, through instantaneous and, and open communications to uh, public health entities in the various different countries and the international ones like the World Health Organization and Global Outbreak Alert uh, and Response Network um, so that resources flow to the site, so that you have cooperation, you have an information, you have diagnostic testing immediately at airports, You have um, contact tracing. You have reaction, rigorous um, expert um, reaction with community cooperation at the point where the outbreak is occurring so that it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't spread. For that, you need international agreements. You need international um, entities. You need a stronger World Health Organization. Um, uh, You need... International participation in the form of sharing information quickly, honestly, and providing resources to the places, the countries where it's needed most. And this is not just a, uh, this is not just a, a matter of armaments of public health. This is a matter of education. You need you need to be training more kids in science and and training more um, young students in virology, uh, molecular biology, infectious disease science. All of that. Um, to, to have us ready to respond and and win the battle next time that that um, that we haven't won at least in the early stages with uh, SARS CoV two this virus.
0: We just joined us. We're talking with David Quammen. Uh, his latest article in the National Geographic is the cover article uh, titled "Mysteries of a Virus," subtitled "They Kill Us by the Millions, but Without Them Life Is Impossible." I want to get into talking about this viruses in general. Now this is fascinating. Um, I just want to read off a list here. Uh, the, the destructive power of viruses that we we know, but this the, the list you provide here at the beginning of the article is just, uh, you know, impressive, depressing. Uh, so, rabies, polio, Ebola, measles, mumps, uh, various influenzas, um, HIV, uh, Nipa, uh, dengue, Zika. Uh, you know, herpes B. Uh, to say nothing of, uh, you know, SARS and MERS and the, the, new, uh, the new SARS variant, uh, which causes COVID-19. And you do a thought experiment. You say, uh, if we had the power, you know, we could wave a wand and all of those viruses disappear. Uh, but then you say, maybe let's not do that. Why?
1: Yes, uh, because if all viruses disappeared we would lose a lot. It would change the world, as I, as I say, I think, in the article. It would be like um, like pull it, pulling every nail out of a fine old wooden house, and the house would collapse. Viruses have played um, hugely important um, roles in major transitions in evolutionary history, beneficial roles, um, beneficial roles in human life as well as other forms of life. And so although those viruses that I list are all viruses that have um, that have a lot to answer for in terms of human suffering and death, viruses generally uh, are a mixed bag, as I say also in the piece. You know, fire. Fire is something that can be um, a factor for good or a factor for harm. Likewise, viruses. They can be a factor for good or a factor for harm. And, and I should probably... Um, Back that up with some examples, right, Tom? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the one that I go to first, generally, is uh, first of all this. There are there are certain kinds of viruses that um, that can insert themselves into the genomes of other creatures. They can insert their genome into the genome of other creatures. Um, there is a group, for instance, uh, the retroviruses. Retroviruses are famous because it includes they include HIV, the AIDS virus, retro, backwards. Uh, and they have that name because they infect cells the way other viruses do, but then they insert their genomes as DNA into the genomes of the, the cells that they infect. Now, when, when HIV does that, it, it infects immune cells and inserts its genome into the, into the genome of the immune cell so that when the immune cells copy themselves, um, they copy the recipe for building this virus particle. Uh, and then at a certain point, um, they are tr- triggered so that they produce enormous numbers of these viral particles and they come exploding out of those immune cells and infect other immune cells, and uh, pretty soon the person has full-blown AIDS. But if a retrovirus infects reproductive cells instead of immune cells, if it infects sperm cells and egg cells within a creature, within an animal, if it infects the, the cells of testes and ovaries that produce those cells and inserts itself into the genome, then it can become part of the, um, part of the heritable um, genome of, of that population. It can be passed from parent to offspring, this virus inserted in the genome. That's called endogenized retrovirus, made made endogenous, made part of the genome. And we humans now contain endogenous retroviruses that amount to eight percent of the human genome. Eight percent of the human genome yours, mine, and everybody else's Tom's, is Viral DNA that has been repurpo- that has been inserted into the human genome, or the, or the lineage that has led to us over the course of the tens of millions of years, animals leading to mammals, mammals leading to primates, primates leading to humans. Eight percent of our genome is now this viral DNA, and one stretch of that DNA is a gene that scientists call syncytin two s y n c y t i n syncytin number two, and this was formerly a gene that produced the envelope around a virus particle and now it produces an envelope around the placenta um, during human pregnancy. It produces a membrane that surrounds the placenta and it transports nutrients from the mother into the fetus. It transports waste products from the fetus back out to the mother so that she can excrete those waste products. It performs this hugely important function. Without it Human pregnancy is impossible. It's this membrane; it's got a long, fancy name. I won't bore you with that. Um, but it is created by a gene that we acquired by viral infection.
0: Wow! Yeah, uh, you you also write that um, memory, at least some process of memory, yeah. were influenced by yeah. this process in, in, involving viruses.
1: That's 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 right. There's another uh, retrovirus. Um, that uh, got into the lineage of mammals over long periods of time, um, and it now exists as a gene that the scientists call ARC, A-R-C, ARC. So this is a gene in mammals, including humans, and this gene seems to be, they're still working on this, but it seems to be responsible for converting experience into um, genetic information in the form of RNA, packaging it in little capsules little bubbles that move from one n- neural cell one neuron to another for storage so what they're saying is that this is a this is a gene that we got from viruses and it's responsible for the storage of experience in physical form in other words memory the arc gene uh, from viruses mm. uh, Early work on that is being done in a number of labs, including uh, the lab of Jason Shepard down there in, in Utah.
0: Yeah, yeah, University of Utah. Um, yeah. You get a bit philosophical here. I want to quote this. You see, if 8% of your genome and mine is retroviral DNA and half is transposons, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, then maybe the yeah, very notion right. of human individuality, let alone human supremacy, is not as solid as we like to believe.
1: Yes, and this is a thought that I traced out a lot. In uh, two years ago, I published a book called The Tangled Tree, which is, goes into all this stuff. It's about um, it's about the tree of life, and the fact that the tree of life is much more complicated than we thought. Now that we can draw the tree of life using molecular information, and not just um, not just physical similarities in the bodies, you know, similarity between between monkeys and apes and, and humans. We now do it with molecular evidence. So, so I, I talked about all this um, there, and um, and we find out things about ourselves and the origins of ourselves. We find out that the tree of life is very tangled. We find out that genes have been moving sideways from one kind of creature to another, as well as vertically from parents to offspring. Um we find out things like the existence of the syncytin genes and the arc gene in the human genome, um, and uh, we realize that that we humans, as well as most other creatures, are composites. Um, we uh, we carry a lot of bacteria and other you know creatures in us, in our bellies, on our skin. That's called the microbiome. But in our genomes themselves, we carry Genes that have come from other forms of life, not by vertical descent, parent to offspring, but in some cases by sideways transfer. It's called horizontal gene transfer. Um, and the main form of horizontal gene transfer is viruses. Viruses picking up genes in one creature and carrying them and dropping them into another creature. Sort of, like, sort of like the viral equivalent of just a sort of drag and drop that you operation you perform on your computer
0: there is, you write here extensively and there's, i guess there has been a raging debate of this very interesting fundamental question what is a virus what is it not and the question is a is a virus even alive
1: right yes that is a a, a lively um discussion uh, among some scientists are viruses alive as i said a virus is not a cellular creature it's just a it's just a stretch of gene um genomic molecule either dna or rna in a protein capsule uh, unable to do anything unless it infects a cell so so is it alive or not and as i say in the piece uh, ultimately i think that argument about whether viruses are alive or not is a philosophical and a semantic argument depending on how you define alive Um, but uh, a corollary to that is that if viruses are alive where do they fit on the tree of life and as I said, you know, I published a book on the Tree of Life. I spent five years on the subject. And in the course of that time, I seldom, if ever, heard viruses mentioned. The, the scientists who redrew the Tree of Life with molecular information showing how we were related to bacteria, how we were related to another group of single-celled creatures called the Archaeans, which, before this wave of science began, we didn't even know they existed. We thought they were bacteria, but it turns out they're more closely related to us than they are to bacteria, probably our ultimate ancestors. All of that mumbo-jumbo, um, it's not really mumbo-jumbo, it's just complicated, fascinating, deep-weed scientific discussion, all of it uh, omits the subject of viruses. Scientists didn't know where to place them on the tree of life. Um, so I go into that some in this article for National Geographic. The most recent thinking by some very smart scientists who study the question of where did viruses come from, where did the first viruses come from, how did they how did they evolve, um, and how are they related to other forms of life? And there, there are three theories. One is that viruses arose as the first form of life. Another theory is that viruses are these fragments of life that escaped from more complex forms of life, broke off, and started a path of their own, and the third theory is that viruses are reduced from cellular forms of life. They have shrunk down by shedding genomes, becoming more and more simple, essentially mooching off cellular forms of life, getting rid of the portions of their genome that did the complex um, production of proteins and things, and, and now instead they parasite, parasitize cellular forms of life, and uh, and borrow that sort of equipment in order to achieve their ends of uh, reproducing themselves um, it's uh, it's fascinating stuff
0: and these things are amazingly uh, adaptable right the mutations which can, which is fascinating can be dangerous as well for for us
1: absolutely and some viruses evolve relatively quickly some viruses evolve more slowly um, as I said we've had a we've had a Um, a vaccine for measles for 60 years, the measles virus hasn't evolved very much. So that original vaccine, I think with maybe with modest um, modification, still works for measles. But influenzas, on the other hand, as I've said, are constantly evolving, and we need a new influenza uh, vaccine every year. Um, In between those two extremes are are other uh, forms of virus that evolve either very quickly. HIV evolves very quickly. That's one of the reasons why we we still don't have an AIDS vaccine because that virus um, evolves changes so quickly. Uh, so yes, they are capable of, uh, of of fast evolution, and we're seeing that now with uh, with the COVID nineteen virus, SARS CoV two, as these these new variants, these dangerous new variants, emerge from from the United Kingdom, from South Africa, and uh, and now one in Brazil that I believe has not yet spread um, to the rest of the world, but people are concerned that it will.
0: Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have our last segment with David Quammen. His latest article uh, in the National Geographic, the cover article is called Mysteries of a Virus, and we're talking about viruses in uh, general and uh, the the virus that causes COVID-19 in specific Uh, You can get your question to us or comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this break.
1: I'm Tim Light, and we have sort of a unique episode planned for you. We're doing a recap of season one. So we chose four episodes that we wanted to highlight. All right, let's jump in. There's a lot of feelings
0: that come up for me. I think the biggest feeling is probably fear. Stigma is just based around, like, Native Americans not being functionable. And, and I was like, this is going to happen to me. You hear or sort of levels of addiction differ by race. It's not race that's causing that, it's racism. It's the way we treat communities of color and have mistreated communities of color. And so it's not because of some sort of internal genetic differences between us, it's because of the social conditions around us there's just something about addiction treatment. There's something about us identifying as addicts and then identifying later as people in recovery. It gives us this really strong personal like buy-in to, yeah.
1: to holding on to these boxes and these stigmas and such. And I think most of the time it comes from a good place and sometimes it just comes out of ignorance. Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders today's
0: access utah episode was first broadcast in january thanks for listening to access utah i'm tom williams and we have been talking about viruses in general that's the subject of uh, the cover article in this month's uh, national Geographic, well february's national geographic uh written by david kwamen we're talking about of course uh, the virus that causes covid19 in specific as well and uh, you can find David Quamen at Um And uh, David Quaman, just uh, maybe just one more question on this. And there's there's a couple of things from your website I want to talk about at the end here. Um, one, I suppose, possible good effect from this whole pandemic is perhaps there are young people out there who have been affected, as we all have been, by this pandemic, and and who will say, I'm going to go into science.
1: Yes, that will be a good effect. I absolutely agree. Um, I hear that occasionally from people who who have read uh, my book Spillover. They say, "Hey, I read that, and uh, that that's cool stuff. That's fascinating. The ecology and evolutionary biology of scary viruses." And now I'm a disease scientist. Um, this uh, every. Uh, not every cloud has a silver lining, but you know, you and I know, Tom, many clouds, many dark clouds have silver linings, um, and if there is one from this event, um, it could be that um, more and more young people are inspired, provoked, um, driven to study science, to study infectious disease, to study the evolutionary biology that... Um, that allows understanding of infectious disease uh, and um, and make us all the more ready to deal with the next one I certainly hope that happens I hope it um, I mean I think teaching teaching kids science I was not trained in science much as a kid um, my scientific understanding is mostly self-taught since I became a journalist um, but I had I had a, a few fascinating um, science courses and science teachers. I wish I'd had more, and I think that there's nothing more important than starting in the fourth or fifth or sixth grade and, and teaching kids science, teaching kids biology, teaching kids astronomy, teaching kids to be curious about the world around them, the universe around them, and understand that science is a pr- is not a body of fact that you memorize. It's a process whereby you use empirical evidence uh, real physical data that can be observed, counted, and measured as a way of approaching a more accurate understanding of the way the world works. Uh, I sure hope that um, this inspires a lot of a lot of young people to um, devote themselves passionately to science.
0: We just have about uh, three or four minutes uh, left. Um, you mentioned uh, on your website that. Uh, that we have lost, and you have lost as friends, uh, several prominent writers and artists. Uh, I want to have you talk a bit about uh, Barry Lopez, who you you describe as a brother. Barry
1: Lopez, yeah. Yes, Barry Lopez, a wonderful, important, eloquent American writer, author of books such as Arctic Dreams and Of Wolves and Men and River Notes, and uh, his last final magnificent large book horizon he died on christmas he died on december 25th and he was a a dear friend to me uh, uh since we met probably 30 years ago we didn't see each other as often as we wanted we read each other's books we helped each other when we could we appreciated each other um i admired his very very unique voice and his journeys and his respect for all the creatures and all the peoples of the world. I said somewhere, I think I said on on my website that uh, he was like an older, he was three or four years older than I, and he was like an older brother to me. And then I realized uh, it's probably lucky that he wasn't actually my older brother because if he had been, I would have been too daunted um, to try to pursue a career as a writer if he were already doing it. And I would have had to have turned to one of the, uh, the only other um, career paths that would have probably suited my meager talents and my disposition, which would have been either circus clown or herpetologist. <laughs> um, we miss Barry. We yeah. miss him very much. Yeah. He was a wonderful man.
0: You also mention uh, William Kittredge, who lost recently as well.
1: And William Kittredge, a great writer and teacher at the University of Montana. Right. He died in, I think, it was November. I was on a a, a, a Zoom memorial event for him just about a week ago. Um, he, he wrote essays. He wrote novels. He wrote short stories. Uh, he was an editor of volumes such as um, The Last Best Place, a huge doorstop compendium of of writing um, from Montana over the last century uh, with his partner, Onyx Smith. They edited that together. Um, And he taught generations of students at the University of Montana how to teach themselves to be writers. I don't think you can really teach anybody to be a writer, but you can help them teach themselves. And I don't think anybody that I know of had more success and, um, and did more good in that role than Bill Kittredge. Hmm. Uh, so um, we, have, we have two good men down in recent months in the literary world of the West.
0: Just about 30 seconds left. Uh, what are you working on? What will we see next?
1: Whew, well, I'm uh, busy, as you said, Tom. I'm, first of all, uh, back in March, um, my publishing house, my book publisher, Simon & Schuster, said to me, would you please push that book that you're doing for us um, under contract now, that book about cancer and evolution, would you push that to the back of your desk and do a book on COVID-19 on this pandemic? My first reaction was, well, there are going to be 200 books on this. And they said, yes, but we don't care. We want one from you. We want ours to be from you or one of ours to be from you. Um, so I am committed to a book on COVID-19, and I'm in the process of figuring out how to do that despite the fact that I can't get on a plane and fly to the Congo or fly to China and crawl through bat caves with scientists. That's what I usually do when I'm researching a book. Now I'm doing it by way of Zoom. Um, But I think I have a way to do that, so I'm at work on that. And I've been doing shorter pieces about COVID-19 for the New York Times op-ed page and for the New Yorker magazine and, uh, um, staying, staying busy, walking the dogs, staying isolated with my wife, our two dogs, the cat, and the python here in my office. Um, trying to stay safe and sane, and uh, and uh, write about viruses. Oh yes, and and the piece for National Geographic about about the the larger evolutionary origins of viruses. So uh, that's. It's been all virus all the time for me <laughs> this year, Tom.
0: Yeah, and it probably will for a little while to come, although maybe some some hope at the end so. of the year. Uh, the latest article, yeah. uh, the February edition of National Geographic's cover article, Mysteries of a Virus, the author is David Quammen. You can find him at his website, davidquammen.com. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: Tom, thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Thanks.
0: Stay
1: safe, stay sane, stay well.
0: Yeah, you too, you too. And thanks, everyone, for listening.
1: My name is Larry Cannon. I have listened to Utah Public Radio since its inception. Our lives are richer for what Utah Public Radio brings into them.
0: Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, also heard at UPR.org.